have a beautiful Lord's Day in Middle Tennessee and a great privilege to join together to worship God. Our, our prayer and sincere desire is that in what we do here this morning, God will be honored and glorified. That's our primary objective, and I hope we all understand that, and that's what we're attempting to do, to honor and glorify our God in heaven. We certainly hope that that will be accomplished, but we also hope that each of us will be encouraged and edified in things pertaining to spiritual matters and serving God, doing His will. We hope that we can encourage one another in those things. And the fact of the matter is, your very presence here this morning is a huge step in that direction. The fact that you're here, that, that you've taken the time to join together with others of like precious faith is an encouragement, and we appreciate you for being here. We have a number of visitors this morning. We're very grateful for our visitors. We want you to know that. We would invite you to come back every time you have an opportunity to do so. And if you have questions, if you, if you wonder about the things we're doing here at College View, and wonder why we're doing them those particular ways, please let us know, and we'll try to give you a Bible answer for those kinds of questions. Thanks for being with us this morning. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5, part of the law of Moses, God gave instruction to the children of Israel. Now, they were going to go into the promised land and occupy it. God was actually going to use them as his agent to punish the people who were currently in the promised land. They were a wicked and corrupt people. And the Israelites, the army of Israel, would serve as a punishing agent of God to drive those people out and punish them for their wickedness. Part of their wickedness was described here in Leviticus chapter 20, beginning verse 2. God gave this rule to the Israelites. He said, again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, whosoever he be of the children of Israel or of the, of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he hath given his seed unto Molech to defy my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. So, in giving the law to the Israelites, he's telling them, when you get there, when you occupy the promised land, no one should engage in the wicked acts of the people in regards to giving their seed to Molech. Molech was one of the idolatrous gods of those pagan people. But the reference to giving their seed to Molech was, this was the instance where they gave their own children as human sacrifices to their idolatrous God. They were burning their children in sacrifice to their idol God. That was a thing that was obviously particularly horrible to God. And he warned the Israelites, don't do that. And the punishment for anyone who would do that would be put to death. So don't offer your children to Molech. And if anybody does, they should be put to death. Well, uh, this was a horrible thing, to be sure. Uh, and just repulsive, I think, to everybody who would even consider giving your children to burn as a sacrifice to an idol god. They, they were wicked people, to be sure. Sometimes we talk about the wickedness of our age and our time, and, and people might say, well, at least we're not as bad as that. We, we live in a wicked world, and we live in a wicked nation, and there's a lot of immorality and horrible things that are going on in our country but at least we're not as bad as that. Well, think about that for a minute. And I want to challenge whether that's a true statement or not. They were a horrible people sacrificing their own children. 
we might be taking false consolation when we imagine that we're any better than that. I would argue that perhaps in many ways we're worse than that. This morning we want to talk about the horrible, ugly, dreadful topic of abortion. And I want to challenge your thinking. Those people were sacrificing their children to their gods. Are we not perhaps sacrificing our children to our gods in the matter of abortions? This is a terrible thing. The statistics are absolutely shocking and frightening. Did you know that since 1973, when the United States Supreme Court handed down their Roe versus Wade decision, that famous decision that made abortion legal in all 50 states, did you know that more than 55 million abortions have taken place in that amount of time, just slightly over 40 years? 55 million abortions. Now that number is almost hard to grasp. Maybe a comparison might be helpful. We've mentioned this before. Did you know that if you were to add up all the soldiers who had died in wars that had been fought for our country, if you went back all the way to the Revolutionary War and every military engagement since then to the current day, about one and a half million soldiers have been killed. Now, that's a terrible number in itself. Uh, and we honor those men who gave their lives uh, for our country. We build memorials all over the country to our war heroes, and I think it's appropriate that we do so. But the number who've died in wars for America pales in comparison to the number of innocent babies that have been killed in just the last 40 years. Over 55 million have been killed by abortion. wonder why a woman would seek an abortion. Why would someone think to kill the baby in the womb? Well, we have an answer to that because surveys have been taken and we know the reasons women give why they get abortions. For instance, 21% say they just don't have enough money. Their finances are inadequate. 21% say they're not ready for the responsibility of a child. 16% say that my life would be changed too much if I had a child. 12% say that there's problems with relationship. Maybe they're not married or maybe there's some issue with the father of the child. 11% say they're too young, too immature. 8% say children are grown. She doesn't want any more children. 3% says the baby has possible health problems. If you look at that list, do you think that you could state a commonality with all of those reasons given? I would say that the commonality of all those reasons are it's about me. It's about me. The reason I want an abortion is about me. I'm not thinking about the life of the child. I'm thinking about me. I just don't want that responsibility yet. My life would be changed too much if I did that. Uh, I, I, all my kids, all my kids I've already got are grown. I don't want any more. It's all about me, right? It's all about me. You know, an interesting part of those statistics is this one. Less than 1% of abortions that are performed are performed because the pregnancy has resulted from rape or incest. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Very often when we are in discussions about abortions, people say, well, you've got to allow abortion, right, because of rape and incest. We must allow abortions to be legal because of rape and incest. Less than 1% of abortions performed are performed because the pregnancy has resulted from rape or incest. Now, go back to the numbers. If we allowed abortion just for rape and incest, which I don't think we should, that's still a human life. It still should be respected as human life. But even if we allowed abortions for rape and incest, 
That'd be less, only about a half a million, only about 500,000 would have been committed in the last 40 years. Instead, we've got 55 million. For all those who argue we must allow abortion because of rape and incest, I'm saying, are, are you willing to kill all of those innocent babies just for that infinitesimal amount of pregnancies uh, that are terminated because they started with rape or abortion? you got to think about that. I've heard Christians make the argument, we must allow abortion because of rape and incest. I think they're wrong about that on all levels. And just the numbers themselves would argue that is a flawed position to take. We've been told that when the baby is in the womb of the mother, it's just a mass of tissue, you know. We're not really taking a life. We're just we're just expelling some tissue that's in the mother's body. You know, anybody who would think that really hasn't studied very seriously about how the baby develops in the womb. Measured from the day of conception on the 18th day, the heart begins beating. Uh, blood is being pumped through the bloodstream of the baby. On the 20th day, the foundations of the entire nervous system are in place. At five weeks, the nose and cheeks appear. Fingers are faintly visible. At six weeks, the skeleton is complete. Stomach, kidneys, liver begin to function within the baby. At seven weeks, brainwave activity has been recorded. Eight to nine weeks, there is obvious response to external stimuli. Another something that happens outside the mother's body is reacted to by the baby in the womb. At 12 weeks... All body systems are functioning for the tiny baby in the womb. All that remains now is for it to grow and mature at 12 weeks. You remember, of course, that a full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks. So at just 12 weeks, less than a third of the way to a full-term delivery, the baby is already developed fully in the womb. For all those who say, that's just a mass of tissue there, we wonder what you're thinking. We wonder how you could possibly give that explanation. And so, for lots of reasons, and some of them are just common sense considerations, for so many reasons, I think that any right-thinking person should just uh, horribly be horribly moved at the thought of all the abortions that are being, concerned, uh, being performed and should be speaking out against abortion. But for those of us who are Christians, the principal argument has to be, what does the Bible say? You know, we can argue, I think, effectively, just from common sense perspectives, that, that abortion is wrong. But for those of us who are God-fearing people, who believe our Bibles, we've got to be interested in what God says. And I think the Bible is just so clear on this subject. Let's review some of the, some of the Bible arguments that we have offered many times before. First of all, we know that God demands a reverence for human life. Go all the way back in Genesis, in chapter 4. You remember the first murder that occurred? It was when Cain killed Abel. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God said, What hast thou done to Cain? God said to Cain, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from my hand. And so... Right at the beginning, among the first people, uh, when the first murder was committed, God showed that there is to be a respect for human life. And innocent blood is not to be shed. The very episode of Cain and Abel uh, shows us that clearly. 
That didn't change. That's never changed uh, from God's point of view. God has always demanded a reverence for human life. Go to chapter 9 of Genesis. Genesis 9 records events just after Noah's flood. And to Noah, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, beginning, God said, Surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And so after the flood of Genesis, we see another example of God demanding a respect for human life. Now what we're pointing out here is this has always been God's point of view. And it's never changed, really. It was true in the patriarchal system. We'll see that God had laws during the time of Moses that were in Moses' law that demanded respect for life, and that has continued to our day. God has always demanded a reverence for human life. Now, how does that pertain to the abortion question? Well, the abortion question is very much about life, isn't it? And and there are these arguments. I think they're phony arguments. There are these arguments. When does life begin? Does life begin at conception or does life begin when a baby is born? We go back to the previous slide where we talked about fetal development in the womb. And I think anybody who could argue that there is no life there is certainly uninformed. Life exists in the womb. God has always demanded a reverence for human life. He's always done that. And He still does today. And so for that reason, Since the baby in the womb is human life, we must respect it and have regard for it, uh, not to callously terminate a pregnancy with abortion. In the Old Testament law of Moses, we see again this emphasis of God on reverence for human life. And we see that the unborn child still in his mother's womb, was uh, if that child was killed, it was treated as murder. Look in Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus 21, we see God giving the law to Moses and making specifics about how they were to conduct themselves. And in Exodus 21, at verse 12, He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. Those who would commit murder were to experience the death penalty themselves. Right? We don't have any problem with that. Skip down just a few verses to verse 22. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Do you recognize the scenario that Moses, that was being described to God, by God to Moses? Here's, here's some men and they're striving, they're fighting. And there's a, a pregnant woman in, in this. And the woman is hurt so that there's some harm to her. Now, when it says, uh, her fruit depart, yet no mischief follow. And so an injury is caused to the woman so that she has what we would refer to as a miscarriage. But it might be that uh, when it says, uh, yet no mischief follow, perhaps... Even though the child was prematurely born, uh, there was no harm caused. Still, the man was to be punished. The man who inflicted that harm upon the pregnant woman was still to be punished. But if there was harm caused, verse 23, if mischief follow, then what? Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. That's the same penalty that was to be administered to someone who harmed a living adult person. In other words, if, if I... 
If I went and fought with a man and harmed him, I was to be punished life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The same penalty was to be administered to me if I caused harm to a pregnant woman, caused her to, to deliver her child prematurely. If, if there was complications that resulted, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And in that, what we see is that the death of the unborn was treated just as any other murder. Again, what we're seeing is this is consistent in, in the way God has dealt with man throughout time. God regards the death of the unborn as murder. Look in the New Testament, and I think another argument that we have historically made, I think it's a good one, I think it's a worthy one, is in the book, book of Luke. I think it's somewhat interesting to note that Luke was a physician, a doctor, and so uh, the, the observations here may have especially important application. But in Luke chapter 1, you may remember that Mary and Zacharias, uh, the parents of John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist, the, the, the announcement of his birth came about six months before the announcement of Jesus' birth. They were distant cousins to one another, and John was to, of course, pave the way for Jesus. He, was, he would be born about six months before Jesus, in fact. Mary uh, has now received the news that she's going to be the mother of the Savior. And she goes to see her cousin. Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to see Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Neither of those babies has been born yet. So Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and in Luke chapter 1, verse 44, Mary, or Elizabeth says, As soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. So now that's Elizabeth speaking. She says to Mary, to Mary, she says, when you came in, as soon as, as you said a word, uh, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. The word there that Luke the physician used was this Greek word, brephos, for the baby in the womb. That's the word that he used, all right? Now skip over to chapter 2, verse 16. When you get into chapter 2, at verse 16, Jesus has now been born. And in Luke chapter, chapter 2, at verse 16, it talks about the shepherds who came to see Jesus. And it says, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Notice the word babe there. Luke, the physician, chooses to use exactly the same Greek word to describe Jesus now already born. No longer in his mother's womb, he's been born. He's the babe lying in the manger. What's our point? Well, Luke, the physician, uses the same words to describe a baby in the womb as he does a baby who has been born we get some indication there, I think, about how God views life in the womb. We could also make an argument from the Bible text that Arthur read for us earlier. Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's one of those passages where Paul lists a sort of a long catalog of sins. Uh, you notice he talks about in the last days there will be perilous times, verse 1. And then he describes what those times would include. He said, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of self, 
having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. All of those sins demand our understanding and our attention, but I especially want to point out to you there at the start of verse 3 in the King James Version where he speaks of those who are without natural affection. There is a natural bond or affection that should normally exist between a parent and child. And I think those of us who are parents have, have sensed that, you know, just as even before a baby is born, you're devoted to that life in the womb. And if the doctor were to come along and say, well, we're concerned that there's some issue here, you would immediately say, well, let's, let's get a solution. Let's find out. What can we do? We, we've got, you know, that's natural affection. When your child is born, you have this affection and you'll do anything to, to provide for and care for and, and see to it that the best interest of the child is met. Even at the, at, at personal, at, at immense personal sacrifice, you will see to it that your child is careful. That's natural affection. Now, Paul said that times would come where people would lack that natural affection. What would be some indications of that, maybe? Well, maybe someone might point to the problem of child abuse. Child abuse, a, a parent who could abuse their child must be lacking somewhat in natural affection. That would be an example, I think. But I, I tell you, I, I can't think of a more graphic illustration of the lack of natural affection than for a parent who could kill a child in the womb by abortion. That's a lack of natural affection, and it is condemned there in that passage. And so for these reasons and more, I think we can argue from the Bible's standpoint that abortion is a sin and must be opposed. Uh, It's a horrible sin, and we need to understand it as such. And Christians need to be speaking out about that. And that's what I want to take a minute to talk with you about right here. Some of you have seen, many of us have a bumper sticker on our car. You've seen some signs around in our community like this that say, Yes on One. And I want to take a minute to explain that, and I want to call you into action in regards to this matter. Someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, I said, man, you're getting pretty political, aren't you? Uh, he said, you're getting really wrapped up in politics, aren't you? And I told them immediately, no. No, this is not about politics. Now, it does involve an election that's coming up in Tennessee, but it's not about politics. We don't do politics here. We all have political opinions, and that's fine. We don't preach or teach them from the pulpit. But this is not about politics. This is about morality. This is a moral issue. So let me explain it. A unique opportunity coming up for all of you who are voters in Tennessee. And if you're not yet a registered voter, I urge you to go out immediately. you got a couple days left, Jay? October 6th, so that's coming up this... Well, you got one week. you got one week left to register to vote. If you're not a registered voter, and if you don't typically vote, You need to this time. And so if you're not registered to vote, I want to beg you to get out this week and register to vote. It's so important. Here's what's happened. Back in the year 2000, the Tennessee Supreme Court made a bizarre interpretation of the Tennessee Constitution in which they said that the Tennessee Constitution provides a fundamental guaranteed right of abortion. Now, the Tennessee Constitution was written back in the 1870s. And I know that the men who wrote the Tennessee Constitution never had such a thing in mind, but the liberal judges on the Tennessee Supreme Court in the year 2000 twisted those words and interpreted them in a fashion in which they said there is a guaranteed fundamental constitutional right to an abortion. 
Now, the result of that being that any rule or regulation trying to govern abortions in Tennessee has been thrown out as unconstitutional. If the legislature were to try to pass new laws about abortion, the courts immediately would reject them as being unconstitutional in Tennessee. And so what's happened is that, and I think most Tennesseans would be shocked to know this, it's easier to get an abortion in Tennessee as a result of this than it is almost any place else in the country. Uh, people flocked to, flocked to Tennessee in order to get abortions because it's so easy to get one here, much easier than in any other surrounding state. Tennessee has become, a, as it's been termed, a, an abortion destination. People come here to get an abortion. Uh, one out of four abortions performed in Tennessee are performed on women who come from other states to Tennessee because it's so easy to get an abortion here. Now, it's been determined that the only way to correct this situation is to have an amendment to the Tennessee Constitution. An amendment that will clearly state that our legislators do, in fact, have a right to administer laws and regulations about abortion. It's not going to ban abortion. You can't do that because the federal government, we mentioned earlier, the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. And so you can't say no abortions at all. That's what we would like to say. But the, so far, uh, that's not going to be possible because of, of the U.S. Supreme Court. But we can reverse this decision of the Tennessee Supreme Court by this constitutional amendment. And it will allow our legislators to begin to enact reasonable laws about abortion. And it will ultimately bring down the number of abortions that are being performed in Tennessee. It will ultimately save innocent lives. And so we're trying to encourage everyone that you must, this time, you must go vote. And it doesn't matter what else you vote for. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you vote for anybody else or anything else on that ballot. You must vote yes on Amendment 1. It is ultimately a pro-life vote, you'll be saying, I want to protect innocent lives in Tennessee. Again, I want to stress to you that this is a, a moral issue. It's not a political issue. This is a moral issue. Uh, and so, as Christians, I believe we must speak out. We have a really unique opportunity in this election. It's taken 14 years to be able to get this on the Tennessee ballot. Uh, it, it's it's uh, believed that if it fails, it may never come up again. Um, there's just sort of for point of reference. There's only two regulations left in Tennessee about abortions. All the rest have been thrown out. There's only two left. One is parental consent. A child under 18 must get parental consent for an abortion. That still stands in Tennessee. The other is in Tennessee. There is still a prohibition on partial birth abortion. You know the horrors of that procedure. It's uh, now. Planned Parenthood and the ACLU, have, it's believed that they're just laying back, waiting. That if this amendment fails, it's strongly believed that they will come after those two regulations as well and have them thrown out as unconstitutional. Well, we don't have much rules left, and it's believed if this amendment fails, even those two, that's the only two rules left about abortion in Tennessee, it's believed that those, those rules will be struck down as well. This is a unique opportunity for Christians to stand up, be heard, let your light shine, be salt and light, all those kind of things that we know we're supposed to do. You have a, you have a unique opportunity here to do that. And so I want to beg you to vote.
If you're not registered to vote, Jack says we got one week left to get registered. If you're not registered, get registered. It's worth the effort. You will be taking steps to help save innocent lives in Tennessee. And, and how could we not do that? In fact, just in conclusion, I want to go back with you to Leviticus 20, where we started. In Leviticus 20, where we started, God was giving the law to Moses, and He says, you, now I want you to tell the Israelites, don't you dare get involved in the pagan idolatrous practices of those people who are offering their children as sacrifices to Molech. And by the way, do you see the parallel? Aren't, aren't we sacrificing children today to the gods of materialism and covetousness, uh, to fleshly gratification? So in other words, we may not have an idol set up, but people are sacrificing their babies to their idols today in a very real way. And, and God was telling the people of Israel through Moses, don't you dare give your seed to Molech. Don't do that. And if you do, he says, the penalty would be to be cut off, to be stoned if you did. But notice as that text goes on. Notice, and if, if the people of the land do in any ways hide their eyes from the man, when he giveth his seed unto Molech, and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man, and against his family, and will cut him off, and all that go whoring after him, to commit whoredom with Molech from among their people. Now, pay attention to this. Not only was the fellow who offered his child as a sacrifice to Molech to be punished, but anybody who knew of that and didn't do something about it, they were to be punished as well. Now make the application to our situation right here. We know how horrible the sin of abortion is. Any right-thinking person, certainly any God-fearing person, should just be horrified by the thought of abortion. You have a chance to do something about it now. And so you must, because did you notice here, God said, I'm going to punish the man who does it. I'm going to punish the man who knew something about it and didn't speak out against it. Boy, that... That just almost exactly parallels our situation today. We're not going to, none of us here are going to get, we're not going to get abortions. But we are this guy. And if we know of it and can do something to stop it and we don't, I believe that passage would suggest that God would hold us accountable as well. Think seriously about it. This is an unusual lesson for us to have on a Sunday morning. But the thought is that it is so important, so necessary, we wanted to get this message out to as many as can hear it. Jack and I have gotten pretty involved in trying to get the message to our community. I would encourage you to get the message to the people in your realm of influence. Talk to your friends. A lot of people are seeing this logo, but they've been telling us, what does that mean? They don't understand it. Tell them, yes on one, when you go to vote in November, yes on one is a pro-life vote. It will save innocent lives in Tennessee. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say uh, if you have questions or if we can provide more support or encouragement, Jack's got uh, information. He's, he has access to uh, all kinds of media materials, bumper stickers and what have you. Uh, if you'd care to get more involved, see Jack and he can help you with that. Thanks for your good attention. We're going to end the lesson with a song of invitation. This has not been, obviously, a lesson that teaches God's plan of salvation or encourages people to obey it, but we wouldn't want to end without giving that opportunity. If you know God's plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're ready to make that step, we're ready to assist you. We'd be glad to study with you more. If you're a Christian in need of the prayers of the saints, we're ready to assist you in that way too. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song. Oh, okay.